It's your birthday next week. It's my birthday next week, the 10th. Me too. Yeah. George York, me Alice York, me too. Alan Suzanne, me too. Ginny, Louis Yana, me too. Larry Washington, me too. What are the odds? Must be 10 trillion to one. What is it? podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello and welcome to the podcast at the intersection of faith and fear where every week we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host, longtime chum, Reed Lackey. And well, guys, he was here a minute ago, but he had this real kind of like harried manner about him. Um, and he just, he was just like, I'm turning 40 in a few months and I just want to go home and grow oranges. And then he just exited the screen. I don't, I hope I didn't even know Reed had some sort of longing to grow oranges. I did know he was, he had a birthday upcoming. Regardless, I, I hope that when he comes back, he's a little more present and with us. In the meantime, allow me everyone not to just welcome you back into our series on learning how to lose titled in the morning. But I also want to welcome back to the fear of God our foreign correspondent and Secretary of State for the Fear of God 2020 presidential campaign. She is, next to Justin and Mike Myers, our favorite Canadian, Vera Gowdy. Vera, welcome back so much to the show. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm happy to be back. Vera, as you know, listeners can hear us discuss the ideas of this series in the morning at length. As part of our Infinity War conversation from a couple months ago, I don't know if you had the opportunity to listen to that one. It's it's pretty good. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, but this series is meant to help us meditate on loss as we navigate life inside a pandemic. I feel like I should add an asterisk of as we in America navigate life inside the brutal environment in which we find ourselves, of which you are at least nominally more better off than we are. Um, but this series is meant to give even deeper resonance to our regular mantra of assessing what scares us in order to find what saves us. But as I am prone to do, I am getting ahead of myself because here at the fear of God, we explore, we don't explain, 
Except for right now when I explain that you, Vera, you listener, you viewer, you read when you decide to come back, can listen to The Fear of God at your nearest podcast platform. You can, yes, watch The Fear of God on YouTube, and you can browse The Fear of God on the web at thefearofgodpodcast.com, where you will find episode archives and merchandise such as cell phone cases, or as Vera is modeling right now, mugs, as Dave Pooler will be modeling on our uh, socials when I get around to doing it, face masks, they are meant for others, not for you, magnets, pillows, read, read, you are... You are finally here. Welcome back to the show, brother. Thank you. Thank you. You know, You're it welcome. has so it has I have been away so long <laughs> that I have forgotten what it was I was doing. Um <laughs> I remember I remember that I told you something. Uh no, I'm actually not doing a bit here. Like you you introduced me and I cannot remember. It's been so long <laughs> since you introduced me that I cannot remember what it was I was doing. It was something about I don't know. It was. It's been a while. Listen, listeners. Vera, welcome back to the show. Where occasionally, Reed, when he rejoins it, just decides to make up a new bit. That no, I'm, really I'm not on. making up a bit. What was I? What? So okay, listeners. All right, peek behind the curtain here. Listen, every single time when when Nathan says that I'm off away, I'm I'm not really off away. I'm what? I'm here. I'm here. And I'm, <laughs> you are like killing the illusion. I'm here, I'm here and I'm and I'm listening. But what listeners don't realize is that, like, kind of in the midst of Nathan's flow, we had some distractions, and and in the middle of the distractions- They don't know that. Well, no, (laughs) because it just happened. Like, it's seamless. It's the magic of podcasting. But, like, honestly, I lost traction on whatever it was you said I was doing. Did you take a nap? No, I didn't take a nap. Like- Oh. There were. Did you grow your orange grow? There were. That's what it was. That's, that's what, it was. what it was. Yeah. Okay. You're turning All forty. Right. That's probably why you forgot though. Is age. Yeah, it had nothing to do with the extended intro that we had. This- well, I don't know if you've caught Reed since you've been here and gabbing on about things that the listeners didn't know about. Vera has joined <laughs> us once more. Hi, Vera. It's good hey! to see you. All the way from Canada. Yeah. Yes. Sunny beaches of Canada. Great white north. Oh, it's indeed. not white. It's. So hot. Everything's north. brown. <laughs> <laughs> the the north. Yeah. Decayed and dying. The north remembers. Um, <laughs> they do. So so Vera is our guest today. Hi, um, Vera. It's glad it's good to have you back. There's a lot of new going on because we also have a new contest coming up, but we do have another guest that I will let us know about that. Oh, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Let's see, business section. Ooh la la, what do we got here? Vera, you don't know. Once that happens, you just look around like, where is he? So you get, there you go. Yeah, you're, you're good at this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Reed, what do, you, right what do we have here. first? Okay, so the biggest thing we want you to do is we are still building our database of email addresses. And so we want you to go and we want you to subscribe to the website so that you can receive important notifications from us when they happen, uh, wherever they happen. We promise we're not going to spam you or just bombard you with a bunch of senseless information. It will all be good stuff. Uh, but go to the fearofgodpodcast.com, click on the little subscribe button, uh, respond to the email that you receive, and then the most important and best thing about this is that we're going to give you some free swag. We're going to give you a free sticker. We will reach out to you. We will acquire the best place to send you a free sticker, and then we will just send you one. You, you don't have to think about it. It'll just arrive in the mail, and it's a beautiful thing. You can put that sticker anywhere. Or in the case of one listener who might have won our contest last week, 
uh, he'll send us the wrong address and it'll come back to us and they don't have to give us the right address. Um, yes. So we do have that. What, what else do we have on the docket? Oh, guest. Oh, we have our audience participation, watching, reading, listening to. So fear of God is building a database of sounds, audios that you guys and me, I've sent some stuff in too. Yes. Watching, reading, listening to, we want to hear everybody. You, your neighbor, your family, your kids, your dog, whoever you want. Sing the What You're Watching, Reading, Listening to. It could be the traditional song that these guys made up. It could be your own tune like we heard on the Shutter Island one, which was awesome. <laughs> That's right. But whatever Shout you want to do. Yes. yes. So, But whatever you want to do, send it to fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Did I get the email address right? You, you did. did. Better than okay. I did, actually. Yes. Yeah, there is no the. Fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Just record it on your phone on the memo device and attach it. Send it. It's that easy to do. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, Vera. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think I just swallowed a bug. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Um, <laughs> last thing is we are going to do another contest. Who doesn't love a contest? You get a we contest. Just did one. You get a contest. We just did one for a book, uh, which is amazing. Reed, did you see that email today? Yes. There's a fairly funny email that yes. you ought to check. I did. I know. Our, I've seen it. I'm, I'm aware. Our book recipient might be getting something more than just a book in his mailbox. Um, <laughs> Personal property. <laughs> really, 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 really funny. Um, so, um, new contest. So, there are two components to this contest. The first one is the same as before. Post and tag us. Well, what are we going to post, Nathan? Whatever you want. Um, pick a, a YouTube video. Um, the, a few of the recent episodes have been chopped down a little bit on YouTube. Feel free to use one of those if you want. You post to your Instagram, post to your Facebook, post to Twitter, and whatever you do, just tag us with your nugget about the fear of God, whether it's, Hey, this meant a lot to me, or Hey, here's just a link, uh, post and tag us as your entry. That's part one. Part two is email us at the previously offered email address that of fear of God podcast at gmail.com email us with your favorite episode or an idea in an episode, like a talking point from an episode in 2020 so far. So if you're new to the show and you want to re-listen to some 2020 stuff, go for it. If you've been with the show for a while, something from 2020, a favorite episode, a favorite conversation, a favorite talking point, email that to us. So part one is out to everybody else, right? Share and tag. Part two is to us, because we want to share some of these responses, some of these stories on the actual episode, something that was maybe particularly meaningful to you, um, something that you found just ridiculous and want to comment on. Um, we want to hear from you. So uh, the primary thing that qualifies you for this contest is the share and tag. Uh, but the second part of it is send us an email uh, for doing that. We are going to be giving away. Um, this will wrap in several weeks. We will announce that. I think before we get to leftover season three is when we'll wrap this contest. So you've got about, uh, four or five ish weeks here. Um, and what we're going to give you, uh, if you get chosen and have your name pulled out of the hat is a fear of God 2020 t-shirt. So Ta-da! that is very exciting. Um, Reed, would you like to send our guest, our other guest? Yeah, not not that guest. The, no, the, no, no. The other. Oh, okay, bye. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. It's showtime. I'm like, 
Let, Perfect. They're dizzy Perfect. now. They're all yeah, of yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, those who watch. <laughs> I'll just put that on a boomerang video and throw that as our, you know. Our, <laughs> hey, look, we're oh, hip yes. too. <laughs> we do boomerang. Um, God gift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, what's next, Reed? What are we doing? Next? It's it's watching, read, listening to next. Oh uh, yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's it's time. But without further ado, and in honor of our actual live human guest, it is time for... What's, what you watching, what you reading, what you listening to. That's the greatest <laughs> so thing so adorable. Ever. It's great. So, yeah, yes, we have, a, um, we have a shared what you're watching and maybe adjacent to that or what you're listening to. We have a shared it. We um, have a watched it. We have a read it. We have a if, listened to it. I was going to say, if yeah. you're deep nerd, you might be reading the source material as well. Mm. That's not. I mean, I read the Wikipedia page on Alexander Hamilton because I didn't know who he okay. was. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's right. See, Canada. Um, <laughs> yes. Not my founding to, father. <laughs> no, it is not. That, <laughs> I don't know anything about your founding. <laughs> so maybe we'll all learn something a little bit today. But our mutual what you're watching and or what you're listening is the Disney Plus premiere of the stage production of Hamilton. Um, Alexander Hamilton. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so Vera, I know a little bit about Reed's background here. Did you have any... Like, had you listened at all to this? Were you familiar with this material whatsoever? Uh, so I know of the popularity of it, of course. And I know um, Lin-Manuel Miranda from his work in Moana. Um, of course. Of course. Um, Which is wonderful. Yeah, I, I love Moana. Moana. Um, but Hamilton actually came to Toronto in, um, like, mid to end February 2020. And it was supposed to be here for a few months. Wow. And uh, guess what? <laughs> COVID hit. So yeah, yeah, nobody got about to see it. That. <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't, I hadn't seen the actual play before and um, COVID ruined pretty much everyone's chances up here of seeing it for the next little while. So um, I was really glad Until that, uh, yeah, Disney plus released it and that was amazing. And it was uh, one of those fun, like you feel like the whole world is watching at the same time with you kind of things. Like all weekend, all I saw on social mm-hmm. media was everyone posting about watching Hamilton, which was cool. Yeah, that's very cool. So awesome. Yeah, we did a really funny story here. So <clears throat> last week, Reed, you asked me, we we talked, we we pre-briefed Hamilton, remember? Right. Uh, yeah. On sort Shutter of spontaneously, Island. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's just humor in my home about if or when my mother-in-law joins me for <laughs> films and whatnot. Well, I made a joke because you asked like how much of it have we censored from the kids or not? Oh, um, sure. Sure. We did. We did. Like I mentioned, we did skip over, say no to this. We said, said no, no to this. Say no to this. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> yeah I appreciate that. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We said no. They were like, please. We're like, no to this. Um, but because grandma likes when she watches stuff to have subtitles on, we did for at least the first 10 minutes have subtitles on during which if you know much about the progression of the show the phrase intercourse over four sets of corsets is said and it popped up on screen and it was just like oh well that's awkward um and then she decided she didn't want to watch anymore and left and so (laughs) (laughs) she's like can't say i liked it (laughs) (laughs) put that on the box (laughs) 
Um, so yes, Hamilton, we did watch it on the Friday night it released, um, uh, pretty much the entire room was in tears by the end of it. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's amazing. I will say for me, having been in the room where it happened, (laughs) uh, it is hard to substitute the live theater experience. So, and so it's clear not to pat myself on the back too much here. We were gifted tickets, so like it wasn't like we just went out and sought them. We would have sought them, but probably not have mm-hmm. bought them. <laughs> so we were gifted them, and the tickets we ended up getting for the Charlotte show were great. Um, so we were like right in the thick of the crowd and just had that full kind of view. Um, so it's kind of hard to surpass that, but um, having the original cast and um, and all I mean by surpass that is like some of the choices made from a camera perspective are great for like close-ups, you know, like sure, I'm sure. thinking of um, Leslie Odom during wait for it, which is just a, just an amazing yeah. song. Yeah. And, and he just kills it. But I, I kind of want the full view. And sometimes, and a lot of that, they don't do much of that in actual, in the actual recording. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was saying that um, to Rob is that like in theater, even if a song is focusing on one person, oftentimes there are things happening on yeah, other parts yeah. of the stage and you want to be able to see those. And when they do those tight camera angles, you miss out on those things. It's still like you're getting the emotion in the person's face, but theater yeah. isn't necessarily made to be that close. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. No, that's, um, but that's it. I mean, it's, it's still to, to be able to see it at all and have that access to it is pretty powerful. Reed, what about y'all? Yeah, we definitely, I mean, it was it was absolutely amazing. So uh, the first night we watched it, well, we've only sat and sort of collectively watched it beginning to end once. And my mm-hmm. son sort of got enthralled by it for the first like 10 to 15 minutes, but then he exited out. It was that, it was that corsets line. What? <laughs> that was the one. <laughs> go, go to your room. <laughs> Play Minecraft or something. <laughs> get out. Get out of here. Um, so, um, but no, so, th- but then what was funny is that then, you know, as you do when you watch the show, uh, then the very next time we got in the car and we're driving, we listened to the soundtrack. And sure. so he became kind of enamored with the soundtrack and it's, I mean, nearly every song is very catchy and is, is really, you know, compelling and propulsive. And so he, on his own, went back and, and I think a couple of different sittings, like queued it up on Disney Plus and watched the remainder of it. So he just kind of watched the rest of it on his own. Um, and we've all, yeah, we're all very, very big fans of the show. I will not subject listeners to it, but listeners, if you <laughs> really want an experimental uh, experience, uh, you could YouTube uh, the, in- it's, I think it's the entire first half of Hamilton, but the entire cast is Muppets. That's it just has to be heard to be believed. Like, wow, it, it really has to be. Yes. And so uh, now yeah. see what's funny is when we talked about doing this, I wasn't even thinking about it from the standpoint of it being this American artifact and right. Right. And Vera as our guest. So like Vera, are you do you do you like the show? Like, are you now like, oh, I enjoy listening to this music or you're like, you weird Americans. <laughs> no, I, I mean, and I, you're idolatry of your founding fathers, <laughs> which is quite true. Um, I enjoyed it because the experience of it is very different than a lot of other theater experiences, right? Like I saw last last year in the fall, I saw Phantom of the Opera and I saw Anastasia, right? And those mm. are very um, grandiose, like traditional big theater songs. Sure. Um, and this has some of that in it, but also so many different types of music. And I noticed that like each singer kind of has their own mm-hmm. genre that they mm-hmm. sing in, which I thought was right. a really cool touch. Um, and they, 
throw like their story there, but they throw a lot of history in and mm-hmm. um, through a lot of like the spoken word, give you kind of summaries of what happens, which I really appreciated. So, um, and also like I watched Anastasia and I like Anastasia and the story of the Romanovs and what happened and all of that. And I, I'm not Russian. Um, so I can appreciate right, historical right, things right. that happen in other countries as well. I right? like, like that. I, I like your, <laughs> your subtle shade there. It's like, hey, then I'm a conscious, mature adult who knows, <laughs> who understands, you know, global globalization. It's like, um, <laughs> so I actually do one thing that, Anastasia, by the way. <laughs> one thing, and I know, uh, I know we don't want to linger here too much eh, longer, but uh, uh, one thing that, one thing that was kind of cool that my wife discovered actually, after the fact, one of the, one of our favorite things to do after we've enjoyed a piece of mi- material is to sort of dig up some trivia, like the trivial bits section that we do on the show happens in the lackey household, like regularly, just, it just we've watched something, we enjoyed it. And she discovered, I did not know this, that a direct and prominent influence for the structure and pace of Hamilton was the West Wing and Aaron Sorkin. Huh. Um, huh. Because he said a couple of major things, like, uh, I forget the Vera, exact Vera, that's ref- an American television show from the late 90s, <laughs> oh, yeah, early can you aughts. Tell me, we don't get that's, any American TV right, right, right. here. It's it, all it focused on political yes. goings on. And- right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Kids in the hall, like you all know, day. Like, that's all we do. All day. <laughs> that's, all, that's all we do. There's like two channels, you know. <laughs> so, but no. So it was like um, that. That uh, like specifically, there was a uh, the line like I'm looking for a mind at work. I guess mm, is a direct work, thing that work. Sam's. Yeah, and I think that's a direct thing that Sam Seaborn says. And uh, there's something else that I believe uh, Mrs. Bartlett says, where she says, "If you'll just come home at the end of the day, that would be enough." And so, like, there's a that couple of direct. Enough. Oh man, yeah, Reed, you're just... there'll be like a couple of of like drops in there. But the biggest thing, and I loved this, and this this is something uh, that that I found really impressive. He said, uh, "West Wing specifically gave him the confidence." to trust the audience that the audience would keep up because it, it throws so much information at you so quickly and expects you to kind of keep pace with it with a lot of the finer details. Um, and, uh, and he said, you know, like West Wing with all of their walk and talks and all of the information that they throw at you just in rapid succession gave him the freedom to say like, okay, well, I'm just going to cram all of this stuff in here and trust and expect the audience to keep up. And I thought that was really cool. And I mean, that hope really that nice. they'll be satisfied. What? You know. so is this going to happen all episode? Like, you're just going to drop in? <laughs> just just wait for it, okay? It's coming. Uh, <laughs> oh, and, the damn and, fool that shot him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And listeners will be helpless against it. Uh, on that note. What's, what you watching? What you eating? What you listening to? What fun. So awesome. So awesome. So we have another oh. whole segment here. Reed, why don't you... Um, yeah. Okay. So, without further ado, because we pick it up here. <clears throat> well, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for yet another installment of hashtag TV Guideposts, where we head back to Jarden, Texas, and HBO's The Leftovers season two. This time, covering specifically episodes five and six, called No Room at the Inn and Lens, featuring special foreign correspondent. Secretary of State at the Fear of God podcast, Vera Gowdy, and my regular co-host, that other guy. Wow. I just got demoted hard. (laughs) Speaking of demotion, though, I would like to point out that I am wearing a Fear of God t-shirt. Foreign correspondent Vera Gowdy is drinking from a Fear of God mug. What what Fear of God attire or, or other swag do you have going on right in this moment, Mr. Lackey? I mean, my face is all over all the artwork. It's so true. I'm, it's true. It's true. It's the hat. It's the hat. 
the official fear of God hat available so, only in the lackey household. Yeah, and we're just we're just, <laughs> just ribbing you there, lackey. Um, mm, yeah, it feels fun. Now I'm curious. <laughs> uh, so one, Vera, knowing we're ultimately going through the whole of the series, I knew you had started, but I haven't kept up. I haven't asked you lately where y'all are. Do, are you past this? What are you generally thinking of the show? Do you do you what What are your feelings about the leftovers? Yeah. We finished it a long time ago. We oh, watched really? all three seasons. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, we pretty much just binged it. Um, and I like the series. I don't think I like it as much as you two. I'm sorry, but I I like it. Um, how, do we, how do we mute her? Read. Um, is that yeah. doable? On this one? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'll see myself. Out. My <laughs> wife feels the same as you do. Vera. I don't know if exactly the same, but yes, uh, I believe so. Yeah. Um. And I think that. Like, I'm not saying that nothing is well done, but like, and I think this is intentional. There's a lot of feeling of unsatisfaction um, because mm. I think that that's kind of the intent of the show is like, not everything gets explained just all the time. Just let the mystery and so, be, Vera. Right. So they just let the mystery be, but that just bothers me as a human <laughs> being. I can't, I just want everything explained to me. <laughs> just yeah. tell me why things are. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because, and unlike y'all, I did finish the series once through when it aired, but I have not blazed on ahead. Um, I'm keeping up with the listeners um, as they track. Just I don't know, courtesy thing. Um, and <laughs> and do you, uh, do you do you need some validation? Do you need a do you I, need a, a lot and information? Yes, actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, I did notice. And speaking specifically to episodes five and six, uh, No Room at the End and Lens. Now I'm not asking for this to be resolved by the two of you who have more recently watched it. That's not ribbing. I just, I'm stating, I don't want to know that I want to rediscover if it happens, but to your point, Vera, I love little things like Matt discussing the moment Mary woke up and us just having being forced where at least where the series is at right now, us being forced to trust him on whether that is true or not. And so there's that instance. And then there was another one dog on it. Something that occurred, I think, in last night in the sixth episode that is a reference to an event that happens off screen that you're just sort of asked to assume. Regardless, most signified by the Matt and Mary element. But, I, you know, see, I'm the nerd who's like, I really love this. I love that it asks me to just sort of make a choice. You know, do I do I want to believe that Matt's telling the truth, even though we may or may not ultimately get that confirmed? So, so knowing that, Reed, I think you, I'll, I'll tee you up here. I think you've referenced No Room at the Inn. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't, didn't you cite this as maybe even your favorite of the series or at least one of the? This No Room at the Inn is my favorite episode of the series. Spe- um, speak to that a little bit. So, um, Matt is not even my favorite character, but, uh, there, there is some substance to, what he goes through in this particular episode that really resonates with me for some reason. Um, and, and some of them I kind of have a a distant shape of in, in my own mindset and, and heartscape. But, um, a lot of it is just, I find some profound resonance of the, in the last 10 minutes of this episode, Mm -hmm. um, that while there's many other moments throughout the run of the show that give me a lot of, you know, just put me through a wave of different emotions. For the most part, this is the, those last 10 minutes just uh, speak so much to the, the perseverance 
of faith, uh, sometimes stubbornly and sometimes foolishly, and and something that uh, maybe nuancing a bit. And and Nathan, maybe you would recommend this as well, or maybe you would echo this uh, more so than I think you would. Um, in terms of the whole "let the mystery be," I I feel like what I've come to accept about myself in art is. I am extremely comfortable with metaphor. So when metaphors are played with, I don't really need very much explanation of how they came to be, or I don't need a lot of context for exactly uh, even what they mean. I just, it represents uh, sort of a metaphorical thing and something like, I'm just going to go ahead and skip into the the plot of the episode. The episode centers on Matt. Uh, not very many episodes in this particular season just zone in on one individual person, but this one is all about Matt. And um, Matt is trying to take Mary to get some screening, and on his way back in meets uh, a, a multitude of hazards trying to get back into Jarden. So where they have Oh, it is awful. But there's something about him ultimately making a decision uh, there's a moment in the middle of the episode where he goes to the outskirts of the town and for those who are you know are not necessarily watching the show outside of this town of Jarden Texas there's a whole group of like you know vagabonds travelers uh, the, there's a lot of people outside just kind of waiting for the opportunity to get into Jarden and out there for reasons that they never really fully go into there's a man stark naked in these stocks, uh, in these like uh, um, I forget what they're called in in traditional historical language, other than stocks. I think they have a, a, a prefix to that. But um, he's in these stocks, and somebody there asks Matt because Matt stumbles upon this and sees it, and she says, "Do you want to set him free?" And he says, "Yes." And then she says, "Well, take his place." And it's just a moment. It's a passing moment. There's lots of passing moments that happen in this episode, but something about him making the decision to come back and actually set the man free and actually take his place for everything that Matt is going through just resonates so profoundly uh, in my heart and spirit. And I think that elevates this particular episode um, above any any other singular episode. Though there are probably moments in the show that I like more, no other singular episode and singular conclusion hits me as hard as the end of this one does. So yeah, it just kind of hits you with an oar and calls you Brian, huh? <laughs> that's the one thing I'm like, because I mean, spoiler alert: you don't ever find out no. any more about that. No, like no, no. nothing, not another word about it. Yeah, and just I'm let like, the mystery be. Come on, Vera, just let it go. <laughs> exactly. Roll with it. And so, so I love. But, I actually do yeah. love, and this is just my weirdo brain. I love the thought of what the writers' room was like when they crafted that scene. It's like. Mm. Let's see. What's what the, is the weirdest thing right, you can call right, right, him right, when he hits right, you with an oar? Right. Or, or no, no, no. I mean, that's <laughs> that's like several steps down the line, Vera. What is the weirdest thing we can have happen when Matt approaches this person? Um, no, no, no. It was just it, it was just an it was just an accident because in the writers' room they were just saying like, "Hey, what should, what should we have him say when he hits him with an oar?" And then somebody turned around and looked like and said and asked and asked Brian yeah. in the room, you know, like Brian, like to get his attention. Somebody else in the room said, that's it. Perfect. Writing it down. Done. And, and that was it. <laughs> Done. And then they just moved Let's on. Put it in there. So I will say, yes. I think one of my favorite moments in this episode, other than like you noted there, read the, the very final one, uh, the because it's my turn scene is mm -hmm. the power. And because I because I knew Matt ends up back outside. I knew this didn't resolve perfectly for matt and mary so when uh kevin and john show up at the visitor center 
I was like, something's going to happen. I think it's a conflict between John and Matt, but I couldn't remember exactly what. And we've seen enough gotcha. of John at this point. This is the fifth episode of the season that we've seen him to know this is a very troubled man who has deep, deep issues. And there's no magic and miracle. No, mm-hmm. no miracles and miracle. And and he challenges Matt's story. Not only does he challenge it, he tells him to say months from now, you got lonely and took advantage of your comatose wife, which is just wretched and awful. And Matt initially, and honestly, this moment, I was like, oh, God, because Matt uh, agrees. Remember? Do you remember this? Right. Matt says, yes, "Yes, that's what I'm going to tell them. And then as John is turning away, Matt just says, what happened to you? And Mm -hmm. it's just this amazing Mm -hmm. acting moment between the two of them that's going to, to me, have echoes of the Regina King, Carrie Coon scene in the subsequent episode, but just this great showdown of character motivation that i just really loved absolutely Any, absolutely uh, one uh, thing yeah go ahead Reed. well no, no i'll just mention one thing about that um that uh, and then vera we're gonna let you just rattle off for a little while because we've been talking for a while but um <laughs> culminating she knows in, how this goes <laughs> culminating in the uh before he goes and sets the man free that powerful wonderful confrontation with john again on the road at the end where he like hands him and says i don't want where he's like i don't want your wristband and then he says you know my wife woke up and he said and when she does again i'm gonna find you and we're gonna have a talk and i'm like oh my god that's That's it's it's just wonderful because for all this and 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 yeah matt is is a very complicated human being but um but there is something remarkable and extraordinary about his stubborn capacity to believe um that uh that is in its own way in a in a almost foolhardy way at times uh rather inspiring to me so um so anyway but that's yeah i love that vera what do you think about any of this yeah these i think um these two episodes might be my favorite episodes this season um Mm. and this one episode five is my favorite episode of the series as well i just Mm. like um eccleston's performance is just so good and i love how he plays like a stubbornness of faith but also like being really naive at the same time yes oh my god yes and just creates such a, a believable character and a sympathetic character, um, but also one to pity. You know what I mean? Mm, like, there's just right. so much to like about it. You can't see. I'm wearing my um, Weeping Angel earrings in honor of him today because I was like, oh, what theme do you wow. today? Because he was the one of the doctors. He's the ninth doctor, I believe. Yes, he yes he was. Um, yes, he was. And yeah, and I've liked and I've liked him as an actor ever since uh, I saw him in Doctor Who. And I think that like especially this episode is my favorite performance of him in anything that I've seen. Like it's just so mm. so powerful, so raw, and especially that end scene um, when he goes up into the stocks and, and takes the man's place. Um, it's just yeah, so good. Well, and what so an good. impressive, and we'll get to six, and six is great too. But what an impressive, just from a story and scripting construction standpoint the gamut of range this character displays reed you it pinged for me a minute ago when you described him as a complex human because you said the word complex and then my thought was character and then you said human and i was like huh but to your credit like the 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 range of human emotion the actor as Matt Jamison shows in this episode is staggering. And I thought it, yeah. it it happens initially when the, um, let your love flow 
sequence is happening at the beginning. And actually what I wrote down is like how beautiful and touching and tender he is with Mary and how laudable, of course, that is. But then what? Two minutes later in the same sequence, how frustrated he gets, right? Of just that. And, and it's, it's, it's so human. Like Mm -hmm. there is tenderness, there is gentleness. Um, but there is also ultimately frustration. Um, it is a very, a very Jobin character and that, that continues to come. Yeah. And anyone who's been a caregiver to somebody like in any capacity, whether it's you care for somebody who, um, has a disability or children or, or whatever the case may be, like you, that moment is so real because Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. can just change in an instant, um, from being like happy and everything's great to being the most frustrated and then so guilty and then back again, you know? Yeah. 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 And Job is really, I want to get to lens, but Job is really like the (laughs) best. I do. Um, Job is really like the, the best sort of way to, to, to wrap around exactly what this character I think is experiencing is, is he is to me, one of the things that I think, uh, people forget and and job is a complex book and so there's a lot to go into but um one of the things that i think people forget when they talk about job they always talk about his suffering they don't talk about his questions and his and his sort of stubbornness and his um and his uh, ultimate confrontation of like hey what have i done tell me my fault you know like what what is going on here and i think matt exhibits a tremendous amount of that where he he very much is you know, motivated by this stalwart belief in these miraculous, extraordinary things. But at the same time, uh, I love the uh, the word you chose, naive. Like, the man needs to stop being a good Samaritan. Good Samaritanism does not go well for him. Oh, my gosh. Go when well he for breaks him. his hand. Ugh. Oh, that's awful. Oh, it's terrible. It's so terrible. And uh, so, yeah, it's – it's I, I, I do. Like, it's not even so much that I love Matt. It's just that I love that a character like Matt is in a story like this because he is so complex and he's so interesting. And um, and and as Nora says in the next episode, uh, nobody does it like you, Matt. Like, <laughs> like it's just he's he's a very um, uh, interesting and a unique individual in television. Is that history. when so, there, is that when she's out at the stocks? I can't remember where that. Yes. Happened. When she comes back to the stocks. Um which to pivot into sure. Lens, since Lens is um, uh, primarily about Erica, and we learn a lot more about Erica, played by Regina King, um, there is a moment when Nora, who has taken care at the end of uh, No Room at the End, she's taken care of Mary, and Matt has gone to sort of subject himself to the repentance stocks for like however long, um, and uh, Mary comes out to join him. He has you know, to some degree, won over yeah. these people to the degree that they let him, you know, no longer be naked. They He's let just him like doing his down. laundry. He's like, it's yeah. all good. Did, did, did he say it was because he refused to let someone take his place? Yes. Yeah. He said he refused huh. to let some, and, and he that. said, yeah, he said, I refuse to let somebody take my place. And then he said, uh, uh, suffering breeds compassion. And uh, and so, yeah, somehow, and that's when Nora says to him, nobody does it like you, Matt. Like, <laughs> like awesome. it's just, it, yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty wonderful. But that's not even, that's only a few minutes right. in this otherwise uh, uh, huge uh, episode. Uh, Vera, why don't you kick off a uh, conversation about Lens? Yeah, um, Lens is a cool episode. I liked the concept of what a lens is and like how that freaks Nora out throughout this episode. But like you start to wonder because there's the, um, 
when the people buy her house, like it was at MIT or something, they buy mm-hmm. her house and yes. they say it was a proximity thing. Um, so yeah, if she had just been on that other side of the room, then she would have gone too. Um, and now there's this other theory that she could be a lens um, where um, just basically whoever she touches, whoever is around her is at risk of being right. um, taken and uh, or getting departed. And, uh, um, and then parallel that with um, Regina King's character and like her struggle and what she's going through in um, not wanting to believe her daughter is departed, but like kind of arriving at that. And especially when mm-hmm. she blows up um, during that meeting, I That's can't remember so what good. it was. That's amazing. It's so good. The Jerry, yeah. don't kill a goat. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. That whole, that whole freak out. Oh my God. Yeah. is so powerful. Like, so, so the episode itself, again, for context for people who are just kind of barely keeping up, is this focuses in on John Murphy, who we've talked about extensively, focuses in on his wife. And we begin Erica. to see Erica is her name. And uh, we begin to see different things that she sort of navigates her world through. She's deaf, uh, which is, uh, you know, a prominent they, – they, they focus on it quite a bit, but it, it is not, uh, you know, pivotal to the plot so much. It's pivotal to the character, but not to the plot. And um, her daughters obviously are missing and they're holding a fundraiser in town. But in the middle of the fundraiser, I love, love, love so much. You mentioned the let your love flow moment from mm-hmm. uh, Matt in the in the first episode. I love that she just calls out the ritualism that is yeah. happening in the town. Yeah. You know, she's just like, you know, just because you slaughtered a goat on that day, now you slaughter a goat every day. Yeah, You're take wearing off your, your wedding, wedding dress. dress. <laughs> yes, yes. And and I just love the the moment that I can just hear in my head because it just is is electrifying is when she says and shouts to the whole room, we are the 9,261 and we are spared. And you hear every range of emotion she's that so she's good. going through when she says that. She's Regina King is such a powerful performer and um and she delivers such, you know, venom and 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 just rejection of all of this ritualism of all of what she would later in a much calmer way call pretend and uh it's just oh, man, well and i think great i stuff. mean you could do a whole thematic episode on this episode of leftovers because i just love like you're calling out this this notion of what is it because i wouldn't put john and erica on the same worldview level you know like the same same having the same perspective but she is calling out like you use the word multiple times and I read ritualism of like, you know, and, and you hear the audience gasp, right? Like, like there's, oh, yeah. there's audible troubled response to how elevated she's getting by tearing these things down. Um, I, I do want to pivot on the concept of the lens and, um, Vera, you brushed up against this, but like, I actually love some of the world building of this episode. Like I, one thing I love about the leftovers is the intimacy of the character dynamics, but it's just fun to kind of hear what is going on in the world of the universe of this show. And mm. you get a lot in this episode, you know, there's the, the new algorithm from Japan and, and lensing just as an idea. And then when Nora finally indulges the phone call, you know, that <laughs> the MIT scientist thinks the demon Azrael resides in you. I mean, it's just wild. <laughs> That they did so much homework on, like, what, what is this world hold right now? You know, mm. like the world of this show, what, what is at work in it? Um, we, if, um, we can talk about whatever else we want or kind of land at that 
climactic scene between Nora and Erica. And I remember the first time through watching this series and something that I love so deeply about it. Now you have to remember, you got to juxtapose this with, this is at the time when like walking dead was at its height. Um, and several shows like it. And one thing I just always love about leftovers is it's drama is not drawn from just, okay, who's going to die this episode or whatever, like this real kind of paper thin narrative choice, right? Creative narrative choices. To me, one of the things I love so much about the show is that the actual drama is rooted in character conflict and motivation. And I, and mm-hmm. remarkably, I think that's hard to find. Um, but it's exhibited so dramatically in this culminating scene between Erica and Nora as set up. Nora has stolen this, this survey, this questionnaire that the DSD does because the DSD is trying to get Erica to answer it to find out, Hey, did Evie, her daughter disappear or just, just run away? And Nora thinks she's doing a favor here and it ends up having the tables turned on her. How, how, um, I'll, I'll throw it to you as our guest here. How do you kind of read that scene? You know, like what, what kind of impact did that scene have on you? Um, at first I like, I picture it in my head as like a face off, like, cause, and it, the camera makes it yes. look like that too, right? Like it's back and forth, back and forth. And it's like question, answer, question, answer. And they both keep everything brief. But then when, um, when Erica flips it on Nora and starts asking her like the questions about her children mm-hmm. um, and then starts to talk about um, what she's been doing with the bird in the box mm-hmm. um, and that she you know, wished her daughter would be okay without her. And then the next day she disappeared. And then that bringing like Nora back to her grief about like when she walked to the kitchen counter and like wished her family away and then they did right. disappear. And like, it's just, it's so powerful and, and very well acted. Um, and I think does at the beginning of the episode, does Nora throw a rock in her window? Yes. And then yep, at the end of the does. episode, yes. Erica's Erica like right back favor. at you. Like, I love that they are neck and neck in terms yeah. of like this face off that they're having. Um, yeah. yeah, it's so good. One of the things I love the most about, so that, that scene between the two of them is so volcanic, but one of the things I like, Regina King is just uh, next level as a performer because the camera is like yes. this close. Yeah. The camera is just this close. And yet you can still register these very tiny little head bobs and these lip quivers as she's sort of, she's in it. you know, uh, she's gaining emotion as she's trying to unpack this as calmly as possible. And the fact that the camera is so still, I think a, a, a lesser performer might have just tried to play it very uh, stone and very uh, stoic. But Regina King, either by instinct or by craft, maybe both, um, knew like, no, I need, to, I need to show a little bit of what this character is sort of trying to swallow down while she's trying to express this thing. And it is, I mean, it is electric. And then the fact that you just have, and Carrie Coon is is outstanding as well, you know, exactly. So the fact that you talked about, like, this is just rooted in character drama, this scene is one of the most gripping and galvanizing scenes of the entire series. And it is two back and forth close-ups of just the actors' faces doing what they do. It is. But more than that, it's outstanding. What is the scene? It's a questionnaire. Like, that's the text. And they bring so much to it. Um, Powerful. You know, and I, I, 
I didn't even mean to stumble into this, but mentioned a moment ago of how Erica's trying to dispel these false rituals, but in saying that she and John are still at odds, she effectively says the magic happened. I caused it, right? Like that's sort of what she's mm-hmm. saying in her story of the bird is I wished Evie to be okay. Now Evie's gone. And and which which again is just a a signal of for me personally, one of the things I love about the show is about the meaning we attach to things. And in a world with events as fantastical and insane as what happens in the world of the leftovers, there's a lot of room for what meaning you end up attaching to these things. Um, and there's so many, I mean, there's so many people in, in it's, it's less so in the room at no room at the end episode, but it is extremely prominent in lens. There are people desperately grasping in their minds and in their activities for control because you have like this is what erica called out at the at the Mm -hmm. town hall meeting at the fundraiser is she's like you're still wearing your wedding dress and you're still slaughtering goats and you're you know and then i love the shade she threw on john because she's like oh there are no miracles in miracle but but you give him a pass right you know like it's it's great um but then even in her like what i love uh, as well about that scene between her and nora is that her and nora are both in their way, scratching at a truth beyond their own understanding because mm-hmm. um, Erica is like sort of when she's needling Nora and she kind of, I, I, I will say this, I, I adore the character of Nora Durst, but she deserves everything she gets in that scene because she is being yes. cold hearted and cruel to Erica and she is grasping for <laughs> control rough. of the situation. Go back to your thought here. It's rough when she as a fan of Carrie Coon and as a fan of Nora Durst, when she's like, I've evolved, I've moved past like, Oh girl, this is not, <laughs> no. Right, Do you know who you're right. sitting across from? That's, that's right. That's King. right. She don't play. And, <laughs> and that's the thing, man. Like she, she threw the question at her and then she threw the rock at her. And like, I'm just like, Oh my God. She's yeah. She, Erica totally has the upper hand in that scene. And I think it's very obvious. Um, and I think it also speaks to the fact that, that Nora is in fact, just on the edge of the cliff. She's just hanging by a thread, uh, trying to convince herself and grasp at straws that she is truly okay, that she's truly safe, that everything is truly fine. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's an incredibly powerful episode. I have to say, uh, and, and then if we have any more, we can talk about it or we can move on. But, um, the Simon and Garfunkel song at the end. Oh, absolutely. The Simon, because I'm a big Paul Simon fan, specifically a Simon and Garfunkel fan. And the, um, the Simon and Garfunkel song, I am a rock is not, is not merely a clever play on the fact that the rock throwing begins and ends the episode, but it is a song about delusion. Hmm. It is a song about, because the song ends by saying a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. And that's what the song has been refraining over and over again is I am a rock, I am an island. And the last lines of the song are a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. So it is a song that I've interpreted it as a song about the delusions we, we tell ourselves to keep us from facing the realities of, of whatever it is that we're trying to avoid and, and, and powerful song choice. And there's more Simon and Garfunkel to come on the leftovers. There sure is. Well, and we can move past, but I got to give lip service here. That's a powerful final scene too. I mean, Kevin's confession. Oh my my gosh. That's gosh. That's like, that's like a horror movie send off. Like, Oh my God, what? We just had this powerful character interaction with Erica and Nora. And you're then finishing with, Kevin confessing about Patty and responding to the fact that he sees her there, but we as the audience aren't privy to that. 
Oh my gosh. Riri, take us out of the TV guide post. Well, uh, yeah, uh, before yeah. I do, like Vera, did you have anything else you wanted to say? Anything else you wanted to highlight? No, good? no, no. Okay. All right. Well, then there's nothing else to do, but <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, try to stay calm. That was not a rock through your window. That was just an episode of TV guideposts. So we are now leaving Jardin, Texas. Hopefully they'll let us back in as long as we've got our wristbands. Um, but if not, Nathan will be appearing in the repentance stocks. For, oh uh, no! Small, a small fee. You can go to uh, fearofgodpodcast.com, no, no, hit the subscribe no. button. You'll, uh, you'll maybe. It's my turn. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. It's, it's his turn. But uh, we want to, we want to very much thank uh, foreign correspondent Vera Gowdy for being here on this with us. And June, tune in next week where we'll be uh, going to even stranger places and even stranger ways. Uh, you'll have to check that out to see what we're talking about. But uh, we'll see you next time on hashtag TV Guideposts. TV Guideposts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are you talking about, um, Ray? Okay, so um, <laughs> you know, so an hour later, <laughs> yeah, that thing. Um, so the uh, you know peek behind the curtain. We uh, had in in this phase, um, we reached out to Vera, and we and and I'm about to pivot straight over to you in just a second, Vera. Um, we had reached out and said like, hey, you know, here's some of the films that we're considering uh, for this second phase of in the morning. And on that list was the film by James Mangold called Identity, starring John Cusack and Ray Liotta, Amanda Peet, and a host of other character players. Um, and so I am curious, just as a, an, an interest, uh, like as an opening salvo, uh, what is your history with this film? Is this a film you'd always wanted to see? Is it a film you'd seen before and really enjoyed? Uh, what's your history with it? What, what drew you to this as the one that you would like to contribute to? Um. So it honestly came down to what I said in our group chat on Facebook that I just picked like my favorite character from another ah. <laughs> side character that was in like <laughs> another character. Yeah. Because I had seen Shutter Island um, and I had seen um, one of the other movies that you'll be doing. Um, so I kind of didn't want to revisit those. Um, I wanted to pick one of the ones that I hadn't seen. Okay. Um, so this is new. Yeah, so this was a, a a new movie to me, and then the one that you'll be doing next week I also hadn't seen. And then I watched the trailers for them, and then I was like, okay, Dr. Cox or <laughs> <laughs> or hilarious. I think uh, The Genie. <laughs> and as much as I love <laughs> The Genie, um, I've been listening to a Scrubs rewatch podcast, and I just That's felt a lot hilarious. of nostalgia. <laughs> he is very against type in this film. Yeah, it's like no the anti-Dr. Cox. Um, yeah, John C. McGinley. <laughs> but that was honestly the reason that I... <laughs> picked this movie <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome that's hysterical and nathan you had seen it at least once before right yeah, in the theater okay all right cool i believe i saw it in the theater as well um it yeah i think it was in the theater um i can remember when when i saw the film the only sort of pitch press release that i had heard that really sort of uh clued me in that this was something i wanted to prioritize was it said most horror films start with an inventive premise and then quickly slide into silly, trivial tropes. But identity flips that on its head. It starts with every platform generic horror movie Arc scenario type, yeah. that you yes, that you could probably imagine, and then 
you know, it's it's a little uh, dated now at this point because it's a it's a few years old, and so um, it's it, probably these tropes are not as inventive as they were when this first released. But then it goes to an interesting subversive place that, unless you're really you know caught on the wavelength early, you might not see coming. And so I thought that was really interesting. It is a film that I uh, I'll lead with my cards here since Nathan often feels put on the spot. Otherwise, I do love the film. I don't think it's a perfect film. Um, it's not the type of film that, that I would, you know, just completely herald was, was without its flaws, but so many of the things that I love about movies and horror movies specifically are present in this film. So it is a film I respond to very strongly that I love, that I'm excited to talk about, uh, to some degree, well, but can I, can yeah, I jump in Vera, Please, by all means. It, it being your first viewing, uh, I'm going to pull a read here. And what did you think of <laughs> identity? Like, like what? How would you feel? I really, really liked it um, up until the big reveal. And then I wasn't a huge fan of the. That's the big hilarious. Reveal. So I'm like, gonna, can I say um, I also yeah, like, figured out who the killer was like well, right at the I beginning. Mean, yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, when you got an evil looking child, it's kind of maybe where we're going. Um, uh, listeners, you can hear Reed unpack a little more in depth on our Shutter Island episode about the the kind of paradigm of in the morning we're in currently, the phase we're in, um, but mainly about uh, I, I misused that word a moment ago, paradigm shifting narratives. You know, uh, your the given circumstances uh, belie where the narrative ultimately goes. And what's really funny about you saying that, Vera, is so if you listen to Shutter Island, my feelings on Shutter Island were by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, well, that, that's, 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 that's a lot of ask, you know, to make that work. Uh, and I still held that experience after this second viewing. Surprisingly, identity, when I first saw it in the theater, I remember getting to the end and being like, that's stupid. And <laughs> this time around, it was a case of knowing the ending actually enhance my appreciation so i would say yeah when the time i have comes, that suspicion that that's probably the case is that if it's not one of those movies that if you watch it like um six cents like if you know right. the big reveal at the end it kind of diminishes the rest of the movie um i feel like it would this movie would be the opposite um yeah so so yeah all that to say riri uh i i actually enjoyed identity a good bit this time around i'm i'm happy to hear that i'm delighted <laughs> I have only really one, uh, like I've got a very brief trivial bit and then one that's a little bit more substantive, but, but not a, not a ton on this. Um, the, the very brief one is just that, uh, the Jake Busey character sings the song as he's being, um, handcuffed to the, um, to the bathroom pipes for the toilet um he sings the song i got stripes and it's just james mangold's next film was the biopic on johnny cash called i walk the line so mm. i just thought that was i got stripes is a johnny cash song um but the bigger and more substantive one is that in the in the film um the character and gosh i didn't write her name down but um uh and gosh i'm blanking on the actress as well her first name is chloe but i, I cannot remember um jenny the character's the character name jenny it's, Jenny. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she um, mentions, she says there's a movie where a bunch of strangers mm -hmm. come together and then they find out that they've known each other. So the movie that she's vaguely referencing is not necessarily a specific movie. It's Agatha Christie's uh, story, Ten Little Indians. And uh, it's a novel first, has been turned into at least three films that I know of, but it is noted for being a template for a lot of 
I mean, a lot of horror films. Honestly, uh, Ten Little Indians. Like ten? <laughs> I mean, there's no way to at least. Um, <laughs> there's no way to. There's no way to uh, to to fully unpack because the premise of Ten Little Indians is that these ten strangers are confined to an isolated location. One by one, they start dying. Among them is a killer, and it's about uncovering who that killer is. Well, that is the premise of like most slasher films: is a group of people stumble into an isolated environment, somebody's killing them. Uh, it's not always a member of their group, but it uh, but that sort sure. of fundamental starting point uh, has had several you know echoes and ramifications throughout the horror genre. Um, and so this one is obviously not a direct. Uh, remake of that or iteration of that, but definitely leans on the premise. And I think in an inventive way, I do, I do find the conceit of the, the, them, because if you haven't seen this film, major, major spoiler alert. Again, these are, this is an entire series about paradigm shifting narratives. Um, you, these characters collectively begin to converge at a hotel on a rainy night. One by one, they start dying and you discover uh, about two thirds of the way through the film, that each of them are actually a multi a personality within an individual who has multiple personality disorder, and this is uh, somewhat similar to Shutter Island, but obviously the tone and context are very different. Um, this is an individual who has been uh, put through an elaborate exercise to kind of eliminate these personalities so that they can get to the heart of like a more true and, and certainly more benign personality uh, within him. And that is the fundamental premise of identity. Um, did anybody else have any trivial bits before we get into the more cursory stuff? Yes. <laughs> Do it. Uh, so there's a pretty grisly death in this one via baseball bat. And... Um, Jake Busey, who bless his heart, just kind of looks. We need to. I'm gonna cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> He's an unpleasant looking man. Um, <laughs> looks like his dad. Is that what you're gonna say? <laughs> like, like a baseball bat to the noggin is helpful. Um, so a life size dummy was created to depict his character having been killed, right? And y'all know this imagery um, with a baseball bat lodged in his throat. One of the studio execs asked to keep the dummy as a souvenir and stored it in his office closet. One night, a cleaning woman opened the closet and found it. The dummy <laughs> was removed from the offices immediately after this incident. <laughs> you think? Oh, that's oh my gosh, funny. That's funny. So yeah, that's, that's really that's, funny. That's, that's it. You know, I, I come trivial bits for humorous stories. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Bear, um, did you have any? Severe. Any? Uh, no, I didn't have any trivial bits. Mine was the one about um, the Agatha Christie novel, which I read in my British detective novel course when I was in university. Nice. Look at there. And there is a character named Vera in it. Hmm. That's all. Oh, I had forgotten that. Um, oh, that's interesting. But I did go back and read the poem to see if the deaths lined up with the movie, and they do not. Mm. <laughs> mm. No, no, no. Doggone no. oh, it. Um, <laughs> so why don't you kick us off for uh, likes and dislikes about this film? Um, so I really liked the concept in the beginning. Like, I liked how they all ended up at the motel and um, how you slowly got introduced to the concept that there was murder. I really liked Rob. My husband did not like this, but I really liked the finding of the um, room keys and the countdown. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm, like mm-hmm. I thought that that was a cool little touch. Um, or yeah, it's, it doesn't end up being a countdown or it kind of is, but not yeah, really. Basically. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I, I thought oh, it was yeah, just yeah. like numbering them. Right. Yeah. Well, no, mm-hmm. I mean, it goes from 10 to one. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. like, yep. yeah. Getting rid of the personalities, I guess. Yes. Um, and then I just, I appreciated a lot of the twists and turns up until the end. <laughs> so what so in a first pass what if you can't articulate it what's what what didn't work for you about the ending did you feel like it was cliched did you feel like it was you know ham-fisted what what do you think i just think and I, this might be because the movie is is just a product of its time the early 90s 90s 2000s um i don't know what year we're in. early aughts yeah 2003 yeah um mm-hmm. so the early 2000s and i just um the tr- that it was multiple personality disorder. Um, mm, mm. I, I'm not, I just feel like it's, it's uh, not sure. making fun of, but it's not correctly portraying. Um, and it's taking advantage of um, a mental illness in a way that it's not actually experienced by people in real life. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. So that just kind of bothered me a little bit. Yeah. And then, the the reveal of who the 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 personality is that is responsible for everything like again i i like i saw it coming from a mile away but then like when they show all of the ways that that, was so dumb. that character had been it was yeah i was i wish they had left that out <laughs> i really do <laughs> well the worst offense is the fire <laughs> one i mean that's like yeah. <laughs> that's like Hugh Jackman walking away from the exploding helicopter in that awful wolverine movie it's like come on y'all this is that we know that child was not actually in front of an exploding ball of flame. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think, I think there's validity to what, to what you're saying, Vera, in terms of the sensitivity that they completely do not handle this movie with in terms of, you know, I feel like there was one other film, at least, at least Split. one that I can think of read. I can't remember what, but that I had sort of like uneasiness of like, oh, are we allowed to sort of engage this concept this way? So I, I can, I can totally understand that. I also, I think for me originally, you're a much more sensitive, compassionate individual than me. I think my initial viewing was more like, was that earned? Is that fair? Did you just cheat? You know, that was more <laughs> just from a narrative standpoint uh, was why my initial viewing was not super awesome. And I think, and and this is, this is not the, uh, the substance I planned to talk about, nor do I think it's, it's terribly valuable for us to talk about, but it is something that I've been wrestling with recently a lot. I have always, and maybe I'm wrong, but I have always sort of approached the horror genre as an opportunity wherein uh, I'm going to say it, and I'm going to lead. With, I'm just kidding. No, okay. I, no, no, I know. But I'm going to lead with the fact that maybe I'm wrong, and and I am actually actively sort of searching my thoughts and and um, and patterns here because I have always, as an individual, approached the horror genre as a place wherein things could be treated without sensitivity. And it's something that's been really interesting to me to see how there are certain com- certain key conversations um, about minorities and uh, otherwise sort of marginalized groups of people, whether that be from a condition of their personhood or condition uh, like uh, we're pointing out and talking about in this film, a condition of mental illness. Um, and, uh, and there's a real conversation happening right now about whether or not horror as a genre has the right to 
um, ex- express these things or display these things in a bit of a nightmarish sense. And uh, the reason I say it's a fascinating sort of thing to ra- try to wrap my brain around is I have, again, I'll say it for the fourth time, perhaps wrongfully so, I've always given horror a pass at that. Um, so, like, when they display... Uh, I'll, I'll use the closest example to me because I am like all of the majority types of everything. Um, the the closest example to me is when they display like a, a religious fanatic, when they display somebody who's, uh, you know, deeply devout in their faith, but that person is a psychotic killer or that person is, you know, like abusive or whatever. And those things exist. They happen in the real world, um, but not everybody, you know, exhibits those things. And I think there was always there's always been something in me. Because I don't know if this was the other film that you were thinking of, Nathan, but there's a recent conversation about M. Night Shyamalan's oh, Split. That's what's going to bring up. Yeah. yeah, for the exact same uh, reasons um, and saying like, well, this is not uh, DID. This is not uh, the way that this you know mental illness should be displayed. And I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't have much more to say about it than the fact that I am I am actively trying to kind of seek some, uh, you know, come to the drawing board on the conversation because I have unilaterally basically given the horror genre and also fantasy and sci-fi to a degree as well because they are already heightened environments in their narratives. I've always kind of given them a bit of a pass um, uh, unless they were expressing something that they were implying was in the real, like this is how this is really is. Um, then I've always just sort of said like, no, this is just an extreme. It's, it's a chance to express and view what we're afraid of in the most outrageous contexts possible. Um, so that maybe we can to a degree normalize those fears and be like, well, that's not. So, you know, I, 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 I don't know if it, if, if it is proper and appropriate of me to, um, give horror the free pass that I, that I do give it. Um, because I believe that we need to, be sensitive to uh, certain things. I don't, I don't think sensitivity is a bad thing. Um, but I think when the conversation comes up, it, it is just an opportunity for me to recognize the ways in which I have given this genre almost a complete blank check as to what it can can talk about, what boundaries it can push, uh, what uh, different things it can display. And, uh, and like I said, that's something that I'm actively sort of um, seeking out some some discussion yeah, so we I can should, linger there or not i should qualify to what i said um that um because split was brought up and i have less of a problem with split um and maybe mm. just because i feel that that performance and narrative deserves mm. more of a pass as opposed to um maybe it's because of what nathan said that i don't feel like in this it movie it. where yeah. it ends up does mm-hmm. well and it's I, this is a note of the of the film identity itself. One thing I really appreciated about this is on sh- watching Shutter Island, and it's unfortunate that um, I'm, I'm throwing a little shade towards that, but they're in such close proximity for me that that they're kind of speaking to each other here in Shutter Island. And hear me, that movie winks at you throughout that something is up, um, but. Hmm. I feel like they so commit and the, the story of the motel in identity is so well considered and fleshed out. Like, I mean, you almost feel like moments, um, this, this is a like for me, 
John Cusack's jumper story. I'm like, mm. this is almost mm. wasted yeah. on what this movie is, right? Like that's yeah, right. fantastic scripting and character work, but mm-hmm. it's buried in, you know, like a, a, a sleight of hand kind of storytelling. So, so I, I guess I'm agreeing with you, Vera, that like I, I would, I was able to uh, enjoy it more this time around, knowing that's where it's going. But still, that's a hard turn when you're kind of Trojan horsing a psychological thriller under the guise of a slasher, which is effectively what they did. Right, right. And uh, yeah, and I do think that execution really matters because I I, I forget which one of you said it, maybe both of you did, about about just like earning it. Because like the story kind of has to has to earn what it's playing with. Like there's another example that gets that gets rather frequently brought up, not for dissociative identity disorder, um, but for its potential marginalization of trans people uh, for this is a slight mild spoiler for this film, but I won't tell you exactly why. Um, there's some elements of the film Sleepaway sleep Camp. Camp. I knew yep, it. That's it. <laughs> yep, yeah, that's it. I haven't seen it. So um, sleep Sleepaway Camp has an element of that 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 has and 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 it's not alone. This 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 is a broad subject about the ways in which certain genres treat um marginalized groups of people and i think that's an important conversation i think it's a vital conversation and i think that art that is complex in its construction might be given a little bit more leverage to have that conversation and present and potentially present something than art that's kind of going for the cheap lowest common denominator but again I'm probably the wrong person to I'm I I need to sit in the in the educational sort of sit like I I need to be educated and brought up to speed on the complexities of it because well, I'm always just like it's a horror film if, so I'm just going to let it do what it does. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll see if what I happens. can throw this in there and then we can move on to the the rest of the content uh if desired. I have a friend um uh, a friend who is homosexual who is a movie fan and I remember specifically him citing how offended he was by the Rob Zombie Halloween because Reed doesn't oh, yeah. don't they posit Michael Myers as like gay as a kid or something like this? Am I they something to that effect? They make the possibility, yeah, yeah. Basically, they uh, he is called all of the worst possible pejoratives that that group is leveled sure, at sure. and and reacts violently as such and so there's there's yeah yeah so point, Rob point being, halloween yes. is problematic for a lot okay. of reasons yeah well <laughs> so, i just yeah, that just yeah. jumps out at me in my memory of of someone i knew personally who who in this conversation making a character representative of other things for for intentionally or otherwise is problematic right you know mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. what matt ruff was talking about in how he grounds some of these things. If you have the one black character, suddenly that one black character is right. representative of all black characters, which is unfair to that character. Um, right. In the identity yeah. conversation, it's yes, we can be mature adults and nuance the conversation and say, okay, well, we know this isn't meant to be representative of all, of all sort of DID cases, but right. at the same time, the movie isn't that sensitive with it. Um, that's a, that's true. And I, so um, I don't want to inhibit, I don't want to inhibit the more cursory sort of intakes. Feel free to throw them in at any point that we want to. But I think this is I think this is something that um, is worth. I don't know, maybe not in this conversation, but I think it's something that's worth identifying of of saying like, okay, 
if we have let me let me play devil's advocate for a minute again mm-hmm. sensitively cautiously carefully um like because uh there there is something that i've heard thrown around in in terms of comedy before when they talk about comedy and certain types of jokes and and uh when they say punching down mm-hmm. like basically like when you're when you're taking a group of people that are already under an oppressive thumb and you are poking fun at them mm-hmm. literally that that's that's punching down when you're subverting the tropes to identify and call out the stigmatization of those group of that group of people by the people in power that's a little different and it's a delicate balance to strike that that some comedians are joking about how ridiculous that marginalized group of people is some comedians i've heard who are much more clever and much more precise are joking about the people who consider those marginalized people ridiculous you know like they're 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 playing with and again the sub, the word that keeps coming to my mind is subversion I'm not going to repeat any of those jokes for <laughs> obvious reasons, but I have I have heard some commentary uh, that that is what it's really doing is it's making fun of the people who marginalize rather than making fun of the marginalized people. And I think it's in in this heightened climate that we're in where there's a lot of important conversations happening about the way people groups need to be expressed and the way they need to have their own voice and the way that they need to be treated fairly and justly and and in in many ways normalized i do think um it can it 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 really comes down to how do they approach the material how do they approach the the specific subjects and i could much more easily see a case of people going like yeah identity particularly because of who the killer winds up being which we haven't we haven't explicitly stated it yet but spoiler alert yeah it's the kid like it's the little it's the little kid who is supposedly like his true self <laughs> that's the you know that's who winds up being the killer and i could easily see somebody making a much stronger case for something like that than uh than than the Kevin Wendell Crumb's character in Split, uh, which is a lot more complex in what that movie's even trying to to play around with. Um, so anyway, that's I do think there's a dividing line that I just wanted to express of you can punch down where you're picking on the people, or you can punch up where you're like, hey, all of all of you who are you know uh, treating these marginalized people and oppressing them, you're ridiculous for these thoughts. Yeah, and, I don't uh, even think funny. that um, having the the actual like personality within the criminal guy. I don't remember his name. I don't remember anyone's name from this movie. <laughs> 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 there's Doc Ock. There's Doctor Cox. There's <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um. Anyway, so uh, the because I think what maybe what they were trying to say with that is that he was stuck as a boy. Like he didn't really have a chance to grow. Um, Mm, And mm. with DID, they say that 90% of, of cases come from childhood trauma. Mm. And because Mm. he had witnessed his mother, um, I think in the notes at the beginning, Doc Ock is writing, Alfred Molina is writing um, (laughs) about like um, her being a prostitute and, and her death and all that stuff. And so because he had a traumatic childhood, like that might be where, his true personality is stuck. That's what mm, sure. I like my, how I, I read that's fair. kind of into that. Yeah. Um, I also just would have liked a little bit more information about that treatment that they were giving him that made his personalities like 
die or like killing them off or like mm. how how that was like it was just like we gave him this treatment and i was like what is the treatment and they're like you don't need to know and i was like i kind of want to know um but like i wish it was something like you know i was saying to rob that it's like a, a sherlock home mind palace like they created this motel yeah right and and each of the personalities is given a separate room and each of the personalities maybe it represents a, a piece of him or a piece of mm. his history and um you know, and his true self is killing off all of these fraudulent personalities that have been created because everybody else other than the boy, I think, is a fraud. Yeah, right. Um, in some way. And uh, so, um, like, I wish they had just explained more of that stuff, but it just kind of gets thrown in at the end there. And I was just like, oh, okay. Well, because, <laughs> it, one, you're asking for more nuance than this film cares to give, which I, I can know. respect both parties there. <laughs> but also... To have given that would have meant killing that your... It would have spoiled the story. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a whole different movie then, Vera. I know. Um, I wanted a different movie yes. is what I'm saying. <laughs> Clearly, it sounds like. <laughs> I just want a whole different movie. Um, well, I've got a recommendation for you. It's about this guy on an island and, uh, you know, um, <laughs> cra crazy things happen to him. There's a big twist at the end. Um, <laughs> read any other specific of the cursory stuff or, or what do you want to, what, what? Um, yeah, I did want to mention like, uh, I had completely forgotten even going into this film and not being my first time seeing it. I've forgotten the presence of Donnie Darko's dad. And yeah, I, that's I just, what I call I him. Love, Donnie I love dad. his scene. There he is. Yeah. I, I, I love his scene. Um, and, uh, I do love, you described this earlier, Vera, and I think this was spot on. Although I, although I like the twist, I find the twist fun and I enjoy the twist. I also enjoy the twists that are before the twist. Things like, you know, Jake Busey's character coming to, you know, he's run away, he's escaped, but then just converges right back at the same hotel. And uh, finding out that they all share the same birthday and, and everything like uh, that's very energizing. Uh, this is a very concise film. Yes. It's 90 minutes. And um and so it, it it's it's really maybe efficient. maybe that's one reason it really elevated for me. Like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> Come, coming off of the two it's hour like, twenty minute shutter. It's like how many yawns? I'm rating it by yawns these days. <laughs> like half a yawn, three yawns. Did you doze off? Um, but I love. I want. I want to pat you on the back here. I actually, one of the things I love about the Busey Motel out the window scene is one thing I will respect here is they know what they have and how to mm. use it. So what I mean by that is they don't give you the viewer time to really understand what even Busey is seeing, right? Like right. he sees right. this sort of uh, 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 cityscape ish, you know, this, I mean, small buildings, but, um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden he's back at the motel and it's just kind of a blink and you miss it to even comprehend what has just happened. But it's just really, I think, Econ economically utilized um, much, much of the film. That's one thing I praised on. It was just a real economy of storytelling throughout. Right. And, and I mean, we're, we're talking about like high mindedness and nuance and stuff like this, but, but uh, this is a pulp film. I mean, it's a film that is based around a gimmick and, and it, it is intended. I feel like tonally it's intended to be just sort of like a pulp slasher with, with what it hopes is a clever and yes. inventive and surprising. Yeah, and I really gimmick. liked that feel of it, the pulpy feel yeah. of it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's present in the deaths as absurd as they are. Um, that's, I mean, like, yeah, like you take, 
<laughs> I mean, it's I didn't write hardly anything down for fear, but if I was going to write something like, yeah, y- you want to know if this is like a, a pulp slasher story, just look no further than Jake Busey's like, you know, bat out the throat kind of death. Like, you know, they're not they're not going for veracity here. The chi- we as much as we tease it and rightfully so, the child walking away from an exploding car. Like, you know, this is this is all absurdity. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that ain't right. Um, creepy children I wanna- though. I just in general I ugh, creepy just no thank you just no thank you yeah (laughs) um so but my last sort of cursory note is just um uh, uh, Rebecca De Mornay was like an unsung hero of my '90s films. Like she showed up in like Three Musketeers and the TV miniseries of The Shining. So like the uh, Kiefer, the yeah, the one with like Chris O'Donnell and yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's in that and um and and she's in I believe and I always. Were you gonna sing the song? No thanks. No. Now it's over. Over. Well, he's sorry. sorry. He's gotten in some hot water lately. <laughs> yeah, and it's oh, not yeah, like the summer of '69 anymore. No, let's go there. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so, but, uh, but no, Rebecca De Mornay. She was in, and I f- always forget. I think she was in the other one, The Hand That Rocks mm-hmm. the Cradle. Yep. I always get yep. that one mixed up with the other one. But, um, but yeah. So she, it was just, it was cool to see her again because I don't see her very much in anything anymore. And I really like Rebecca De Mornay. And so, even though she's in this only very briefly, I'm like, I like this actor, and I really wish that she was still doing a lot more stuff because she's great. She was like, but she gone. She, <laughs> I mean, like, she's not head in the dryer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's over. Um, I was really, so, yeah, I was really was taken back by the wind up disposable camera. <laughs> like that, <laughs> ain't nobody got an iPhone. That is an artifact, <laughs> if ever one existed. In yeah, no kidding. You know. Yeah, oh, the plot, no plot, kidding. like Rob and I talk about this often with um, older TV shows that we like. Like we we rewatch Boy Meets World like once a year. Um, uh, and there's so many plots within that show that just like don't work nowadays with cell phones. <laughs> right, right. Like no, when you absolutely. have to find a payphone and like that's just. <laughs> I mean, what's um, Superman to do? <laughs> it's like, where is he going to get changed? <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Was there anything else that that either of you had for either fear or um, likes dislikes? Well, what's funny is I forgot. I, I did not remember that little Timmy, which is just you know, the worst kid name for a movie, but fits, fits the mood. Um, uh, I forgot that he was the, the sort of ultimate killer here. And I actually wrote, Oh, this poor kid. He's just seeing everything. (laughs) 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 I actually liked it better when Leota was the killer. Like it just, sure. It at least had a little more sense making to it. What? There's a little note. There's a little note in this that I found out that, uh, they filmed the scene and then took out the audio. Do you remember Mm -hmm. the scene where Cusack, like, rams leota up against the vending machine and and just blasts him away like three or four times before he succumbs himself leota in that scene verbalized i didn't do this Mm -hmm. and john cusack says i know and you can still see and i looked for it because i looked up this trivia before seeing the film again you can you can see john cusack mouth those lines very clearly but they removed the audio because they felt it would it would tip the hand too much to the audience that the, that the story wasn't resolved yet. Um, well, so, there's another uh, funny yeah. audio bit when it's in the uh, conference room with Donnie Darko's dad and Otto Octavius and the other players um, <laughs> where one of them says the phrase because the, the bad guy, the, the DID patient's name is Malcolm Rivers. Vera, you mentioned mm-hmm. that earlier, Malcolm. Well, a character says the line 
Malcolm in the Midst, M-I-D-S-T. But apparently in the actual text of the film, you can see him say the word middle. And they were concerned <laughs> that at the time it was when Malcolm in the Middle with Frankie Muniz and Brian Cranston and man, that wow. was 20 years ago at this point, uh, that, that <laughs> wondering was that the reason for that? So yeah, you know, lots of little fun. It's Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> There's a really funny piece of content from Malcolm in the Middle of the little brother dancing that for years my family would do in our house. It's really funny. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I want to to uh, defer uh, if we don't have anything more cursory uh, to to allow if you have it. If not, uh, I have a couple of thoughts. Uh, Vera, do you have anything substantive that you wanted to bring up in the overall thematic scheme, the God portion of this story uh, <laughs> that you wanted to highlight? Um, no. So kind of just um, what I mentioned already in terms of like, even though they don't explicitly mention in the film like what the treatment is but like looking at his different personalities and what they represent to like they're each a piece of him or a part of him and mm. what they of Malcolm and they each represent something and and that they're all um in s some regard masking something or they're mm. they're untrue mm -hmm. identities right um yeah. and that's played out through the characterizations of those personalities um like how they're personified, I mean. Um, yeah. So you have like the prostitute who's, who like literally hustled somebody for money. Um, you have the Dr. Cox who's like pretending to be a dad because he's the kid's stepfather. Um, you have the mom who is like not fulfilling the role of a mom. So she's like the fraud of a mom in the same way like his mom wasn't. Uh, you have the Jenny. You mean the mom who name? got hit by the car? Yeah. That's mm -hmm. pretty cold, Barry. Like she's not a real mom. <laughs> She's not gonna go get I, hit by that I'm car. Not, this is Malcolm's head. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, you have um, Jenny, mm -hmm. is that her name? Um, who's faking a pregnancy? You have mm. the boyfriend who's. Um, it appears he's only staying with her because he thinks that she's pregnant, mm -hmm. right? So, like his feelings for her are fake. You have Ray Liotta and um, Busey, who obviously are convicts, and so that's a lie. And you have the motel owner who's not really the motel owner. That's a lie. Did I miss anybody? Yeah. No, I think you're right. Uh, Cusack. Well, Cusack is a limo driver, but he's he's hiding all kinds of stuff. Oh yeah, I he's mean, a limo like, driver who used to be a cop who felt like a fraud because he couldn't save true. that woman. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a great yeah. scene. Yeah. You know, Reed, this this movie watching Cusack reminded me why I actually like Cusack, but not in 1408 with that surf, surfer I, Cusack. I was hoping. <laughs> yeah, I was I was hoping we get through the whole thing nope. without you bringing nope. up 1408. <laughs> that movie sucks. Um, <laughs> I like it. Okay, I you just like can't it. get away from like the hotel no. motel motif no, in horror no. movies, can he? No. <laughs> no. Hotels. Matt Jameson can't can't be a good Samaritan. John Cusack should never go to a hotel yeah. ever. Well, ever. You know, he at least looked good doing it in this one. <laughs> That's a good point. With that camera. Um. So so I, I don't even know that it's a. I I really love what you picked up on there, Vera, and I I think that whole notion of. Uh, obviously, it's something that has come up multiple times in this phase of the series of just like knowing yourself and your 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 true self, and um, it's it's become a portion of conversation just on the show recently with Black Swan and and Shutter Island and 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 this whole quest of of coming to know who you really are and embodying that as best you can. Um, the I don't even have like a a thesis here, but the 
the movie made me remember one of my very favorite quotes. It's uh, by an author that I don't reference as as frequently on the show, but Flannery O'Connor, she constantly gets referenced in terms of like, you know, conversations of theology and horror, because that's kind of, uh, you know, her her material was not explicitly horror in genre, but definitely had some gruesomeness to it. Um, And so she's frequently brought up that way. But she has one of my favorite quotes. I'll quote it here. It just says, free will does not mean one will, but many wills conflicting in one man. And freedom cannot be conceived simply. And I've always loved that imagery. It's actually, I can't remember the first time I stumbled on that quote. But ever since I did, I've made casual joking references to like the 49 reads that are sitting inside my heart and mind because there are so many instances in which a part of me and (laughs) it's really weird like I have often contextualized my own conflicting thoughts about a subject in visualizing two different versions of myself having a dialogue. And I know that sounds really weird. I'm not intending to be narcissistic. I love that you're here, Bear, because I'm learning things too right now. (laughs) (laughs) And and so, like, part of it is there there will be a part of me that will rise up and be like, you can't tell me what to do. Like, you know, shove off. I don't want want anything to do with you. There'll be another part of me that be like, okay, every... (laughs) Be's like... (laughs) There'll be another part of me that's like, um, everybody needs to, you know, we need to be reconciling and we need to be considerate and we need to be compassionate. And there'll be another part of me that'll be the hyper intellectual. And there'll be another part of me that um, just wants to sit and shut up and watch movies. And, and I feel like a lot of times, and the reason that Flannery O'Connor quote has resonated so much with me, and and I'm going to tie it back to what you just said, Vera, is because there are so many times, and, and this came up in our conversation about the total of season one of Leftovers, where it is it is difficult, and this came up just recently in my own personal life. Like it is really, really difficult to look inside your heart to understand and discern what you see there and then be able to express it in truth and value. Like that is a really, really difficult thing. And I'm seeing it more and more in in the ways people will just sort of regurgitate. Mockingbird out exactly what they, uh, you know, what they've seen, the latest, you know, uh, trend on on social media or the latest headline in whatever you know political or social affiliation they most resonate with, and and I was just I was having a conversation with a family member and I expressed uh, to my wife in kind of unpacking that conversation afterwards, I just said like that that is a hard thing and I don't. It's becoming more and more clear to me how few people possess, maybe either because they haven't done the work or because they just simply have not invested in the capacity to do what I just described, which is look inside your heart, find the myriad of different, whether in the film's parlance, recognize I'm being a little jokey here, but in the film's parlance, they they haven't looked inside their heart and seen the variety of different intentions and personalities and different things that they have within them and the ways that those are colliding and clashing with each other in a way that will substantially substantively allow them to express who they truly are um and and to to wrap a bow on this uh for at least my thoughts on it i am becoming so so frustrated in the social conversations whether those conversations be about 
politics or racial tensions in America or uh, all of these different things. Um, I'm becoming frustrated with the ways that people are making monoliths of entire groups of people and they are they are homogenizing movements they're homogenizing intentions and one of the things pulpy and low-minded as this film is one of the things this film sort of sparks in me is the ways in which like yeah like you can have a multitude of different ambitions a multitude of different conclusions a multitude of different uh, desires all again in the film's parlance sort of shoved into the hotel lobby and starting to duke it out with one another and starting to fight and and one by one depending on the the tension and the crucible of the climate you're in one by one they start to go till all you're left with is a baser less nuanced less complex um less conversation and dialogue driven and interaction driven intention um and i don't even think the film is that interested in having that conversation but that's what it sparks in me so i i invite from either of you some some responses to that idea if you have them if not we'll we can move on take it away no we just did the same thing (laughs) (laughs) they're both being so gracious i already said something you go ahead yes (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i mean i think i think reed and and Vera, you you will you are not going to be put on the spot and asked how routinely you keep up with listening to the uh, to the fear of God. But I'm all caught up. Good, good. Hey. Like, I'm proud of you for being all caught up, and maybe like the leftovers, you're already way ahead. Um, <laughs> I do think it's interesting, Reed, to note how a ghost story kicked off this thread mm-hmm. of the self, and more than mm-hmm. that. It's interesting to me because I don't, for better or worse, I so rarely do much with intentionality. Like I'm, Mm. I'm, I'm a more impulse passion driven, uh, decision maker than a thoughtful intellectual decision maker. Um, so you may have known this is kind of in the stew from the get go of in the morning, but it's just also interesting to me that this conversation about our engagement with ourself is also in the mix of the content we're covering during in the morning. Does that make sense at all? In other words, it's not just that it's represented in the films we're covering, but that it's coming up as the dominant thread of conversation as we are dealing with a pandemic, a coronavirus moment, a, a, because that's that's what happens. I think a lot about in Infinity War when Ian used the word, and he's, there was more to it, but he used the word destabilizing, mm-hmm. and that has that has um, echoed through my brain and and I suppose my heart and spirit since that conversation of like when you look at yourself, when you look at others, when you look at people groups who are acting frenetically, when uh, someone asks you to hit them with an oar and call you Brian, it's like why <laughs> is this weird stuff happening why is person x acting this way and it's like we are destabilized and in a destabilized moment now an argument could be made that we always are we always sort of exist in that state we just have comfort to dull us to it but Mm. in a in a state of destabilization what you're left with is just the you you are right like Mm. now it's like okay oh my god well who am i what 
now that this comfort is cut off from me, now that this stability is cut off from me, now that this expectation is removed from me, now that this, you know, all of the things that we accumulate in a life that for lack of uh, a less cheesy way to put it, give us identity. Mm-hmm. When those mm-hmm. things start going away, I think there is solid ground to be had, but to the person who has never been destabilized, to the person who has already always lived with great comfort, that's, that's very shaky ground to start to encounter. And we're not used to the ground constantly shaking. And that is where yeah. we are at. And so it's just fascinating to me because I know, I know for your purposes, Reed, in picking the, the, the paradigm shift stories, you know, that there was an, a, an apocalypse, a revelation type of idea going on there. But it's just interesting to me that this, because I don't think Malcolm Rivers in this film is cogent enough of mind that he would ever get to this point, just the way he's drawn in the film. But I keep thinking about, uh, Leo on the bed in shutter Island and how mm. a, the capacity, if the capacity existed in Malcolm to get there, that's where he's heading. Right. Which is silencing these voices until all that's left is, um, we've used the phrase true self a lot. A phrase that came to me for talking about identity was integrated self. Mm. Because I, Vera, I think you make a great point that all of these personas are, there's a hiddenness, there's a secret about them. And yet at the same time, I think there's, uh, ignore the metaphor of the film. I think in truth, we are all those things at the same time. Like it's not that mm-hmm. it's not that these are fake persona to him. They're part of him. There may be a most integrated version, but they are still part of him. And I think, I think that is, th- that is at least how I have grown in my 40 years and I'm bad at it, but I can be knowledgeable enough to know the pursuit is the stillness, is the quiet, is the integration of self, is the ability to say, okay, I am feeling destabilized. Why is that? Okay. It's because of X. Uh, I can't, um, Hamilton just came up. Um, uh, I am the one thing in life I can control. Mm-hmm. That's a hell of a song, but that, yeah. that line rings out. Like these things are destabilizing. The, the world <laughs> is turned upside down and not in the awesome way in which it's exemplified in him, or at least, uh, you know, sung about in Hamilton, the world's upside down and I am destabilized. What can I control? Not that, not that, not that, not that this, but mm-hmm. it takes a massive amount of self-awareness of, of self, maybe self-control, but that's not exactly what I'm after. It takes a massive amount of self-awareness to come to that place to, because, because you get spun up when it's all destabilized out here, we get spun up too. Like, Oh oh my God, why am I feeling the things I'm feeling? And, um, I think this is super random, but inside out was an amazing movie for me. This ability mm-hmm. to recognize, and, and it didn't hurt that I had some personal uh, uh, counseling experience going on in that season of life, but they all kind of married to each other there of like, oh my gosh, I don't have to be at the mercy of my whims and passions and feelings. You know, yeah, these are right. things that 
um, in, in a, in a more cogent and nuanced version of the film identity, I can take these pieces of me out, examine them, look at them, think about them, ponder them, and then reintegrate. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a way yeah. in which that is healthy. Well, because I'm, I'm sorry. It, it, it's I, what you do. No, no, no. Are, <laughs> it's what you do more often than not. No, but hey. um, I don't want to cut off your thought. Something that you just said about this integrated self, like just sort of galvanized my imagination. But I, I sincerely don't. If you add more conclusions, you. I mean, I was just. I, don't want I to was interrupt. in the. I was in the. I was in the flow. It's gone now, though. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm, totally I'm sorry. <laughs> It'll come back. Oh, so, I think there's a there's a dichotomy to be identified between an integrated self, which is reconciliation of all that complexity within one person Mm -hmm. uh and it truly in flannery o'connor's definition free will all of those wills conflicting inside one person but um but integration is a reconciliation of that there is a version of that which identity accidentally stumbles onto where it's just you just get rid of your compassion you just get rid of your sensitivity you just you just get rid of like those things there's a difference between integrating them in a fluid way that will allow them to push and pull against one another mm-hmm. to arrive at a more mature yep. conclusion. Um, and then there is another version of that where that conflict just causes one by one of them to fall off. And now suddenly you don't care about the things that you might have cared about previously. And I think that's, you know, both are a version of breaking down and destabilizing to reach a singularity, to reach a singular point of a singular intention, but one of them takes all of the diversity, complexity uh, within us and makes them all hold hands and move forward in dialogue together, in concert together. And the other version of that is just like, well, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And I'm going to, I'm going to move forward in my, my bullying nature. I'm going to move forward in my, you know, and and this speaks to what we talked about um, in, in this uh, sub series about idolatry because let me tell you if there's any version of this town ain't big enough for the two of us examine your idols examine the things that you hold as ultimate things mm-hmm. because they will not yield they will not <laughs> the movie's silly they, they are little timmy like saying nope you you guys can't stay here uh and and you know you don't get a second chance and you don't get to survive and and that's the thing is is like it's hard work it's difficult work. It's valuable work, and it's necessary work to um, dig deep into. Like, but it's work hey, we I don't want to do. No, no, we don't. We absolutely don't, because it means facing the fact that we are capable of cowardice. It means facing the fact that we are capable of narcissism or mm-hmm. self-indulgence. It means facing the fact that we are not always the shining example of right and goodness. We don't always do the right things. And it's not necessarily always mistakes. Sometimes it's blatant like we knew it was wrong when we did it, and we did it anyway. And facing those things, can we... we Going back to Shutter Island, it's like these things all thread together. <laughs> Going back to Shutter Island, it's that we create a story in which we're not the killer, we're the hero. Right. We create the story in which we have been able to successfully drive out all the undesirable things that live within us instead of staring them in the face and recognizing, no, this is a part of me. 
And this is as much a part of me as the parts that are more admirable and more sort of pedestal worthy. And I have to hold hands with both of those things together if I'm going to be truly in myself integrated and whole. Um, and, and it is, it's hard work and complex work. Vera, what do yeah. you, what do you, what do you say? I there love that you brought up, um, inside out. I actually watched that earlier today. Um, cause That's they put so it on Disney plus. So, um, <laughs> and what happens when like joy and sadness are gone in that movie, right? You're left with disgust, fear mm-hmm. and anger. And when you let yeah. those things take control, um, when you're, your identities are not working as a cohesive unit, right? Like things go awry for Riley in that movie. Um, And then in a similar fashion, um, you have Malcolm with his dissociative identity disorder, where his uh, parts of his identity have been placed inside a person within himself. Mm. Right. And so he can't, he, I don't know if he can't, but maybe he doesn't experience all of these things simultaneously Mm. or cohesively. He passes them off to different personalities. Like he's been, um, mm. uh, th- this in sign language. I don't know what the English <laughs> word is. Sorry, podcast <laughs> listeners. <laughs> it's a visual that you just hold. Sure. In. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we thought you were just certain. using some, you know, <laughs> histrionics there. Not that you were actually communicating. Anything. <laughs> Sometimes I forget words in English. Um, and and me too. But I don't have a backup language to then to revert to. Um. And you can, like, the the characters within the movie Identity 2, um, aside from the fact that I think that the stronger point is that they're all hiding something, um, but mm-hmm. there also seem to be pieces of, like, um, Jenny is very emotional, and that might be where his emotions hang out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Amanda Peet's character is compassionate, and so that might be where his compassion. Um, you have, uh, oh my goodness. The main actor. What John is his Cusack. name? John Cusack. John Cusack. Yeah. Mike, mm-hmm. Joan Cusack. No, that's his sister. Um, <laughs> All right, Jesse. <laughs> um, who's like the more rational thinker trying to solve this problem, right? Like all these, and it, you cut those things away and they're not working cohesively. And in his mind, they can't work cohesively. And so they're all being cut away and separated. And all you're left with is a child. He's a psychopath, but he's just a child, right? Mm-hmm. And sure. it's not mm-hmm. mature. It's not a developed identity yet. Um, yeah. Well, and mm, uh, listeners could have a drinking game based on my Richard Rohr references, but here we go. <laughs> I was waiting for um, it. I was reading, uh, Rohr has an Enneagram book and it's just called Enneagram, a Christian perspective. And it's, I'm, I'm sad to report I didn't finish it. I probably just read the section on the four <laughs> and then set it aside, but it's also just really dense. Um, that said, he brings up something interesting there and, and for any listener new to this type of stuff, Enneagram is just, uh, I'm not going to say it's just like any other personality type, type of test, but it is a sort of personality identifier type of, um, uh, thing. Um, that's a really academic word there. Um, well, it was really fascinating because if anyone knows how the Enneagrams are identified, it's the need to be X, right? So like mm. in my case, an Enneagram four, it's the need to be different. Now, what's fascinating is in the book, they discuss the word sin and they kind of recontextualize it from a real traditional evangelical mold. But what the, he and the co-author basically posit is your Enneagram need to be is your sin. In other words, 
for me, the thing that keeps me most from maturity and whole and non-dualistic thinking is this need to be different. It is a thing I will continue to trip over in my life. Like this is, this is how this is. If my personality leans, that's the direction it's, it's pointing. Right. And so it was just always, it kind of blew my mind when they refashioned this idea of the word sin that it, you know, and, and be offended by that thought if you want to, but you, you might be ignoring something more interesting there, which is to say the thing we are most channeled towards is the thing that can often keep us from that self-awareness, from that ability to, to hold together the, the disparate facets of ourself because our inability to do that will make us myopic. I think so much who knew Disney would come up so much in this. I think so much read about our conversation about toy story Four, the, yeah, the, right. the paradigm shift that Woody goes through in that movie of the, I, the, his, to use that roar Enneagram language, his sin was his inability to separate from Bonnie, right? To be mm-hmm. a singular toy to a singular child. And the maturity happens from broadening that view to say, I can be, uh, I can universally apply these lessons and this love and this life that I've cultivated to, to have a more broad application. Main takeaway from this is simply like this integrated self idea that, that the things we are most prone to while indicators of strength often are also the stumbling blocks for our own maturity sometimes. Absolutely. If that makes any sense. No, I, I, no, I think it absolutely does. Um, well, I, I I feel pretty satisfied with the conversation, but I, like I don't that. want to. If, if, Good job, Reed. Yeah. <laughs> You'll um, never be satisfied. Um, <laughs> I will be. I can be. Um, just you wait. So, um, basically, uh, if we have anything else to add, I want to give that moment now. Otherwise, we can move into the, to the fog meter. Vera? Nope. Nathan? You good? Okay. So the fog meter is our very specific metric of fear and God, where we rate these films, these material on their scares and their substance. So um, I'm going to go first on fear. This is a film that obviously is is rooted very deeply into traditional, almost stereotypical and cliched horror tropes, again, with a sort of an underlying gimmick on it. To that end, I think it's not very scary uh, in in the deliberate scent. A couple of um, startle moments or something like that, but I'm going to give this a five on the scare factor, the fear factor. Vera, what would you what would you give it? Um, I'm going to join you at a five. Um, I think that there's a, a dark tone to it. Um, I think that there's a, a couple of deaths that you kind of don't expect, so it gives you kind of like a whoa factor, like the mm. baseball bat and like. Dr. Cox getting smashed by the car, like those things. Um, but yeah, not overly scary. Understood. Understood. Nathan, what about you? Five. <laughs> hey, well, we are not in uh, disparate places. We are an integrated uh, group of podcasters at this moment. Um, uh, Nate, <laughs> Nathan, what would you say for the God factor? Um, I think a four. I think it, it's a, it's a, film structurally based on a gimmick and and beyond Mm -hmm. that it doesn't have much interesting to to sort of say or really and actually this isn't a knock it doesn't really care (laughs) beyond that so i don't think there's much there yeah vera what would you say yeah i'm gonna say um 3.5 just because (laughs) i think that i want it to say more than it actually does (laughs) just will it will it into being vera (laughs) 
<laughs> um, I really this point five I is going to do it. <laughs> I really uh, I agree very strongly with what you guys have said. I'm torn at the moment because, as so frequently happens, I think I latched on to an element of the premise and of the the ultimate execution. Not the execution, the ultimate conclusion that the film is not interested in. I, I think I'm walking away with this whole notion of the integrated self versus the, you know, sure. getting rid of nuance and complexity. And because of that, but I, I think in this case, unlike some other instances, I think I'm bringing that to the film. I think the film does not care that deeply about any of that. So giving it some points for sparking that, but without giving too much credit to the film, I'm going to land at a six. So you're so, you're wanting to be tilling your orange grove and the film's <laughs> like, uh-uh, not going to yeah. do it. Nope. We ain't going to have that. You don't get a second chance. Or no. don't get a second chance. Uh, <laughs> they don't. They wow. don't. No, clearly not. <laughs> Everyone gets a second chance on this show. So that means that we collectively give Identity, directed by James Mangold, who is a really strong director. We haven't really commented that much on it, but he's a very strong director. Got some great films under his under his belt. But we give this one a 5 out of 10 on the fear of God, on the uh, fog meter, if you will. Um, so, But the, the more pressing question, which I'm going to go to Vera first for, is would you recommend, especially first time viewing, would you recommend Identity? I think it's it's worth a watch. Like I I might recommend it um if somebody asked me, you know, should I check out this movie and I'd be like, <laughs> If someone like, asked yeah. you, do you recommend this? Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> <Yeah>. Hypothetically <laughs> would you speaking, recommend it? <laughs> if that was the question that you just asked me, I would <laughs> Um yeah. That I, I wouldn't what I'm saying is that I wouldn't go out and recommend this to people. I wouldn't be like, hey, right. you guys gotta watch identity. But if somebody asked me, like you just did. I love Vera, you have <laughs> You fit in so well here. We like, we nuance everything. It's like, yeah, if you were everything. cornered, if you were cornered, yeah. identity or not, yeah. <laughs> just be you'd like, be like, fine, fine. Okay. Just watch it. Just watch sure, it. Fine. Visualize this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the blockbuster. I'm on Sepulveda. I'm in the blockbuster right there. And I'm over there by the corner. I can see this shelf right yeah, yeah, yeah. here. And somebody says like, hey, identity. Identity or shut around. So identity. in Canada, <laughs> it's Roger's video. Roger. Um, and oh, okay. <laughs> no, we did have blockbuster too, but. Um, uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I would. Sure. No, and I'll, <laughs> I'll go next, uh, like for myself, I think I'm sitting exactly where you are. I don't know that I go out of my way to tell people about this film, but if anybody's like, Hey, have you heard of this or do you, or whatever, then I'm like, yeah, I, I enjoy this. I like this film. I think you should check it out. Um, but it's not like near the top of the list of ones that I'm like, Oh, you, you have to see it. It's like a blind spot you have to fill. I'm not really in that camp. Um, I feel like this question just you, keeps you... getting new shades. It's like, do you recommend it or is it the best thing ever? <laughs> no, it's not the best thing ever. I, however, much more strongly than the two of my scene partners here, would if someone was like, hey, I did it, I'd be like, yeah, it's good. You know, it's it's an effective whodunit. Um, you know, uh, a well-made slasher. It's economical in storytelling. You know, you might yeah. not be ready for the pivot there at the end, but whatever. It's got all the hallmarks of what you're after, and it's an hour and a half. Go for it. <laughs> so why not? Why not? Uh, We're so, all in quarantine uh, so yeah. anyway. You have an yeah. hour and a half to spare. Yeah. Just watch it. We know you got time. <laughs> Come on. We know you got time. Um, well, that uh, that puts another installment of this phase of hashtag in the morning in the books. Vera, thank you so much for carving out some time in your quarantined life to uh, be able to <laughs> come really and spend to some time. It's really hard to fit you guys in my completely empty schedule, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
But uh, it's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you very, very much for coming back and joining us for this conversation. Um, And listeners, thank you for listening to it. We are going to be continuing this phase next week with episodes seven and eight of season two of The Leftovers. Um, So check those out. And also, we are going to be diving into a film that's a bit uh, on the cusp of what we do here. Uh, it's, It's not traditional horror, but check out the film by Alex Proyas, if I'm saying his last name correctly, called Dark City, and uh, a, a really interesting film. Check out Dark City, directed by Alex Proyas, and uh, we will find you back for this conversation. Vera, thank you again. Thank you. Nathan, as always, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. See you guys. We'll see you next week. Thank everybody. you, Vera. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest episodes and news, as well as for merchandise and how to contact us. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God, on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music, and to Tyler Smith and MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.